Hello again, and thanks for tuning us in on The Main Question as we wrap up Season 2 of our podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. This episode is all about finding and communicating the very best science and medical information out there. You can probably guess why that is an important topic these days. As of this recording, we are more than three months into dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. What do the latest, best scientific facts and findings say about the key issues surrounding the coronavirus? It's certainly changed life as we know it so quickly and in such profound ways that it becomes a daunting task, to say the least, to discover what the best science says and to separate fact from fiction. Luckily, UMaine and other faculty members from across the UMaine system are experts in many of the pertinent fields associated with the pandemic. System Chancellor Dan Malloy decided to bring those experts together to form the Scientific Advisory Board, whose charge it was to find and communicate the latest information on things such as vaccines, virus treatments, the effectiveness of masks, slowing the spread of the virus, contact tracing, and many other topics. University of Maine President Joan Farini Mundy is a central figure as well, helping to come up with the idea for this board and serving as its chair. Their findings have not only been useful for UMaine system campuses across the state as they look for the safest ways to reopen in some fashion this fall, they've also shared this information with the Maine legislature and others. Another example of university research and development fulfilling a critical need for the state. There are five faculty members from UMaine system campuses on the board. Melissa McGinnis, an assistant professor of microbiology, whose focus area is the study of viral diseases, is the lead scientist. We'll let the others introduce themselves so you can recognize their voices. One key member, Sarah Houston, an associate research professor and chronic disease epidemiologist from the University of Southern Maine, wasn't able to join us, but her contributions, particularly in working with the Maine Center for Disease Control and Prevention, were a key part of this effort. I'm Christy Townsend. I'm an associate professor of neurobiology. I'm Caitlin Howell. I'm an assistant professor of biomedical engineering. I'm Rob Wheeler. I'm an associate professor of microbiology in the Department of Molecular and Biomedical Sciences at UMaine. I'm Melissa McGinnis. I am an assistant professor of microbiology in the Department of Molecular and Biomedical Sciences. Well, welcome to all of you. I know it's a bit of a crazy time and we appreciate you you taking some, some time to talk to us. So maybe let's start here. What was the genesis for this scientific advisory board and what was the overall mission? Maybe Melissa, let's start with you. Sure. So we were asked by President Joan Freeney Mundy to start the Scientific Advisory Board to provide guidance to the humane system and university leadership on COVID-19. And they were interested in taking a science-based approach so that they could use the science to guide their decisions going forward. And a number of us were already sort of working on these topics and we were digging into the literature and we were following all of these updates very closely for various reasons. I was following the literature closely because I'm a virologist and I study how viruses infect cells. So I was very interested in the um, emergence of SARS-CoV-2 and the pandemic that began. And I was also teaching a graduate virology course and I was incorporating that into my course material as well. 
And so I had been asked by a lot of people, um, various media outlets and uh, things like that, to comment on SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And at the same time, Chrissy Townsend was doing a lot of research, as was Rob Wheeler and Caitlin Howell, in various aspects of the pandemic. And a few of us were talking about starting up a testing facility at the University of Maine to help aid the state as we were seeing a surge in the number of cases. And that's where um, Christy and, and Rob and I were starting our communication. And Caitlin Howell and I were also working on a grant application together. So I'll let them speak to the work that they were doing and how that all fit together. Christy, maybe talk about how did you start? I mean, it's such a huge, fast-moving issue. Where do you begin? My entrance into all of this, I guess, is through Bangor Public Health. They reached out to the nursing department on campus and wanted someone to be able to help uh, distill the scientific and medical literature for them because it was moving so quickly. So the nursing department reached out to me and then I reached out to Melissa and we've been, um, I think since March or April, been putting together bulletins for them that sort of summarize the major topics as we see. But then they also submit topics to us that they're hearing from the public and want more information on and want to know what the evidence is saying. So that's sort of how I got into all of that. Caitlin, how did you get involved with this? And what's what's your piece of this that you bring to the table? So I actually started to get involved in this because I was hearing a, a lot about people wondering about the science behind how they could be sterilizing their N95 masks. So you may remember at the beginning of this, there was a bit of a crisis because our healthcare providers realized they were going to need a lot of these masks to protect themselves while they were taking care of the influx of patients that had this, this virus. So they didn't know how they could sterilize or disinfect their, their masks. So um, as part of that, my, my grad student, Dan Reagan, and I, we started looking all through the literature. We started using the resources at the University of Maine through the Fogler Library to be able to just see anything and everything that had already been done about what methods work to disinfect these masks and what methods are probably not a good idea. And so we were just constantly watching the literature and organizing this information and providing it to healthcare providers in real time and answering any questions that came up. So uh, that, that is sort of how, how I got started in this. And now I'm tracking not only that, you know, how can we clean our surfaces effectively, but also the transmission side of it. You know, how is this stuff going into the air? Where is it going? What can we do to help protect ourselves and protect those around us? Rob, what is your corner of this? And, and where have you seen this information go other than just contributing to the knowledge of folks here on campus and, and the board here? So um, what I've been really interested in is the immunological aspects of this. This is a um, brand new disease that nobody has really um, any understanding about. We have some knowledge about similar viruses and their diseases, but um, really this is brand new. And it's fascinating for me from a scientific perspective, but also um, from a sort of more gruesome perspective, looking at this disease pass uh, through the globe, it it uh, really struck some fear into me. And, and I felt like using my time and expertise in understanding microbiology could be um, something that we could use at University of Maine to be really at the forefront of understanding the disease and keeping people safe on campus and, and in the community. Let's dig a little bit into the science of this, and maybe we can uh, separate some fact from fiction because there's a lot of both out there, it seems. What is the latest about how it spreads and the most dangerous ways that it spreads and what can be done to stop that? 
Yep, I can take that because I've been following that really closely. It has been really interesting to watch how fast the science has been going and understanding exactly what's happening. Because part of the problem, part of the reason why, why we had to go into these massive lockdowns was simply because we didn't really understand what was going on. And so we couldn't really effectively target specific things to stop the transmission. But now science is really picking up and we're starting to get a handle a little bit more on what is happening. And it's looking like uh, the primary method is absolutely droplet transmission through the air. You're close to somebody, you're talking with them, you're just breathing, or you are sneezing and coughing. All of these are producing droplets that can contain the virus. And when someone breathes in those droplets, they can go down deep into the lungs and begin an infection. So uh, we also have what's called fomite transmission. That's where you breathe or you sneeze or you speak and these droplets come and they land on a surface. And then if someone comes along and touches that surface and then touches their face, that is another way that you can pick up this, this virus. Uh, a recent article in the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal talked about one of the, the most dangerous situations is prolonged closeness by people. It's the time and the amount of virus that can pass between two people. Is that why masks are one of the best tools? And, and what do you make of the fact that some people are saying masks are ineffective, so you're trying to get that message out there when some disinformation is going on. That is actually a really good point, Ron. And this whole thing started with the masks because we really didn't understand what was happening. We thought that you would wear a mask to protect yourself. If someone sneezed near you and you were wearing a mask, then that would stop the virus from, from getting inside of you. And actually what we're finding is that the reverse is really true. The mask might not protect you from virus coming in, but what it does do is protect other people from the virus that is going out. And it took us a bit to reach that conclusion. But now that we know, there are so many studies that keep coming out that showing that mask wearing is really critical, that it's what we as members of our own communities can do to protect those around us. Yeah, I want to follow up on that because there was a very recent article that Caitlin pointed out to me, actually, which is really fascinating, came out of China, showing that it's actually the mask use before you get um, diagnosed with a disease that's the most important. And that's really, uh, I think, highlights how important it is for people who are feel healthy um, to be protecting other people in the community by wearing face coverings and paying attention to social distancing. People are, are probably ready to get back to their real lives and, you know, they're ready to become re-socialized, but at the same time, we still need to proceed with caution. We need to be taking lots of preventive measures, using face coverings, we need to be social distancing, um, and we, I think we just need to be really cautious as we go forward because we're really not out of the woods yet, and this virus um, has not gone away. It's still being transmitted within society. We don't have an effective antiviral treatment. We don't have an effective vaccine. And so right now, our best measures really are the use of face coverings and social distancing, as well as hand hygiene. That's another very important factor in helping to reduce the spread of the disease.
I just wanted to add to that that flattening the curve also is about taking pressure off the hospitals. And especially when um, areas have a big outbreak, the hospital system can easily be overwhelmed with this virus because the most severe cases require specialized equipment like ventilators, which are limiting. Um, ICU beds are also limiting. So, you know, places are tracking those numbers and that can be a good indication of which areas need to (laughs) maybe stay at home a little more so they can alleviate the pressure on their local hospitals. Yeah, I just want to um, say something about Maine specific. I think that the really fast action of the governor and the Maine CDC has made a tremendous impact on our ability to keep our curve relatively flat and um, really save a lot of lives in in the state. So those uh, public health measures that came out very early were extremely effective. And you can see that in in the actual curves that that the Maine CDC publishes every day. Yeah, and in April, there were more ICU beds available in our local hospital than there were before the virus. So it really did work in Maine. Obviously, a vaccine is what everybody's hoping for. Where are we on coming up with that? And are there other treatments for people that have the disease that might lessen it that are also being developed? So there are lots of vaccines and antiviral therapeutics that are in development right now. Um, I think the the last update that I saw, there are almost 170 vaccines in development, and 11 of them are now in clinical testing. And so the vaccine development has moved along very quickly, um, especially with some significant investment from the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BARDA. So they've invested billions of dollars to help support the funding for the development of vaccines. And vaccines are critically important because this will lead to the prevention of the disease. And what happens is when someone receives a vaccine, we're essentially injecting them with the blueprints for a specific part of the virus that then allows the body to make antibodies to that particular part of the virus. And then once we can produce those antibodies, then we can prevent the disease within the widespread population. And so it's really important that we have the development of a vaccine, but generally vaccines take on average about 10 to 15 years to develop. And so we're talking about developing a vaccine in the span of a year or a year and a half, which is really lightning fast in terms of vaccine development. But a lot of these companies have really um, taken on. They've, they've been called to the mission and they are working incredibly fast to develop these vaccines. And there are a few that are leading candidates for clinical development. Um, one of those is a vaccine that's being produced from a company called Moderna. And they've partnered with a company called Lanza for global development and distribution of that vaccine. Some of these companies have promised that there would be vaccine available by the end of this year. Um, I think that that's a little optimistic. I, I hope that that's true. Um, but I think that what might be more reasonable is that we could possibly have a vaccine developed by 2021. For treatments, yeah, there are somewhere on the order of 200 and some treatments that are currently in development. Um, and there have been some that have come out that really led to a lot of enthusiasm, but then they have fizzled out a little bit. Uh, one of those is remdesivir, which is uh, a viral inhibitor. Um, And this actually received FDA-issued emergency use authorization for patients with severe disease, and it can cut the amount of time that those individuals are in the ICU. Um, However, this is something that has to be given in the healthcare setting. It's it's not a pill. Um, It's actually something that's 
given intravenously. And so there are still some limitations with the use of remdesivir. Another type of treatment that's been used is convalescent plasma, which is um, something that is essentially antibodies that come from individuals who have recovered from the disease. And then those antibodies are given to people who are suffering with the disease, and then that can help them to overcome the illness. Uh, so those are the two leading treatments. And then there was recently um, some new information that came out, but we're waiting to see the primary paper on dexamethasone. And so um, possibly the use of steroids could be really effective in treating this disease. And that's also been seen in children who have an interesting pathogenesis um, with this disease where they have multi-organ inflammatory disease. Comparing COVID-19 to the flu, can you talk about the differences between those two diseases? One of the main differences is that SARS-CoV-2 is a novel virus, and this virus has not spread throughout the population before. So we don't have any pre-existing immunity to this virus, which is very different from influenza, which has been circulating within the population, you know, for as long as we can remember. And because we don't have any pre-existing immunity, therefore we're incredibly vulnerable to the disease caused by this virus. In addition, we don't have any existing treatments. We don't have any existing vaccines. For influenza, we have an effective seasonal flu vaccine and, you know, maybe about half the population gets it and therefore they might be protected from influenza disease. But people are not protected from the SARS-CoV-2. In addition, we're sort of living in this real life experiment, right? We're learning as we go and we're learning about the pathogenesis of this disease. We're kind of learning on the fly. And what we're seeing is that there are really severe consequences. And so while some of the symptoms might be sort of moderate, um, you might have a flu-like illness with a fever or respiratory uh, symptoms like a cough, um, there are some other types of symptoms that are less um, probably less common that people sometimes don't associate with a severe disease. So GI type of symptoms, there's also the loss of the sense of taste. And sometimes people might not realize that that can be a symptom also um, of COVID-19. And so what makes this really challenging is that people might be experiencing some of those mild symptoms in the beginning, and they are still going about and they're spreading the virus. And people can actually be spreading the virus when they are asymptomatic or presymptomatic. And that period can be for 14 days. And they can be spreading the virus and shedding it in the environment during that time, passing it on to others while they're out feeling healthy. They don't know that they're sick. They're not taking any measures to reduce the spread and transmission of the virus. And then they're out spreading it to other people. Uh, there's also a very high transmission rate of this virus, so it's about two times as transmissible in comparison to influenza. So if we look at the r naught value, that's the mathematical calculation that an individual would become infected from another individual. And for SARS-CoV-2, it's about 2.5 in comparison to influenza, which is around 1. And so it's two times as infectious as influenza, and we don't have any treatments. And then, like I said, these symptoms can be sort of moderate, but then they can actually escalate and become more severe. And so this can lead to severe respiratory distress in which individuals require oxygen or ventilation. And also individuals, when they have an immune response, which is usually a, a good thing to combat a viral infection, sometimes that immune response can become out of control and they can experience a cytokine 
cytokine storm. And in those individuals, they can actually end up crashing and they can have really a, a, a multi-symptom um, attack, a multi, multi-organ attack um, from the immune system as they're experiencing a cytokine storm. And so that's why it can be very dangerous. And there are also a number of uh, predisposing factors that make some individuals very vulnerable to the disease. And maybe I'll just ask, maybe Chrissy would want to talk about some of those um, underlying conditions. Yeah, so age is obviously the big one we're hearing about in the news, that there's more risk for people over age 60 or 65, but actually data coming out of New York where they have big patient data sets of, you know, 5,000 or more people who tested positive for COVID, they actually find an increased risk of hospitalization over age 40. So age is definitely a factor, but um, lots of different health conditions also can increase um, your risk to be hospitalized or your risk to have severe outcomes, including death. And that's um, obesity and diabetes, um, kidney dysfunction. One of the big ones is uh, being immune compromised. So having um, some sort of either underlying autoimmune condition or, or other condition, even asthma, that affects how your immune system functions and therefore, like Melissa alluded to, um, can impact things like the cytokine storm being worse when you get COVID. I only wanted to kind of emphasize what Melissa was saying that um, why the coronavirus is so much more dangerous than the flu. So in 2019, we had about 34,000 deaths due to flu influenza, seasonal influenza. And the prediction is that if we do not have any vaccine or any social distancing in the United States, we're looking at 2 million deaths um, in the United States um, from coronavirus. So it's really um, several orders of magnitude much more dangerous. And that's due to the um, things that Melissa talked about. It's very, very contagious um, also in, um, in asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people that otherwise appear healthy. Now, you're all scientists and finding the latest scientific discoveries is obviously tops on your list, but it's one thing to know the best science. It's another to communicate it effectively, make sure it's heard. Do you have to work to get the right information to the right people and make sure it's understood? Is that a challenge here? Yes, and I would say even the scientific community in general, we've watched some interesting case studies lately of uh, retractions of articles in big medical journals that are highly respected, um, and also papers coming out where scientific experts, including some in our group, can easily find flaws in, in the analysis or interpretation of the data, which gives a misleading interpretation to the public. So this is science sort of self-correcting as it always does. I mean, people call out these things when they happen and they do tend to get fixed. But with things being published so quickly right now and, and a lot of them ahead of peer review in what's called a preprint, uh, where articles are put out very quickly so people have the information, but they haven't gone through the vetting process of peer review. Um, this is putting a strain, I think, on people's ability to just um, accept the findings that they're reading. And that's tricky for us even. We've had to step back to the trust in some of these articles once we dig a little deeper and see that there are some flaws that need to be considered. Um, but when studies are replicated, and multiple groups, uh, multiple countries are finding the same thing, then we feel better about um, trusting those findings and then disseminating it. We should mention here also that Sarah Houston from the University of Southern Maine is part of your group, and unfortunately she was not able to join us, but uh, is, is certainly a key part of this uh, effort as well. 
Yeah, I want to say about her, too, that, you know, we've all said what our expertise is, but she really brings a critical piece of expertise because she has public health and epidemiology um, knowledge. And she's also working closely with CDC to set up their uh, contact tracing. So, you know, she really has been an essential part of our group. Caitlin, maybe for you, the, the University of Maine and the system, they have so many experts in fields like this, such as yourselves here. Do you see this work as part of the mission of a research university to help out in a cause like this? Absolutely. This is what we're here for. You know, we're we're employees of the state and we're here to serve the state and its people. And this is what we're doing. We are all trained in, in being able to find this information and think about this information critically and, and boil down this information in a way that can be understood. And so I think we're all grateful for the opportunity to do this. And, and we're we're excited to be able to to watch this and to be able to find when there are solutions that we feel may be able to help our administrators and our legislators and our, our population in general. Melissa, have you interacted with either the main CDC or the state? Has this information gone, it's gone beyond the university community, certainly. So we have not directly interacted with the main CDC except for our connection with Sarah Houston, who is working directly with the main CDC. Um, but we have given updates to the Chancellor of the Humane System, to President Freeney Mundy, the President of the University of Maine, Orono, and University of Maine at Machias. And we have provided updates as well to groups, including the state legislature, like Caitlin just mentioned. And I think that that's really important so that we can also help to provide information to them so that we can dissect what we're learning from the literature and from news updates so that they can also better inform those within their communities and help to make really critical decisions for the state. So that was a really excellent opportunity for us as well. And then we have met with internal groups. So we meet um, twice a week with the Humane System Safe Planning Group. And we also have met with the AFM group, which is the um, Union for the Humane Faculty. And we have met with um, Faculty Senate and other um, teams, including the Emergency Operations um, team at the University of Maine. And a lot of groups have reached out to us for advice so that we can analyze some of the guidance that they're coming up with um, to help provide safety for those on campus and just asking us to review it from a scientific perspective. And that's been really helpful so that we can look through that information and then provide some advice back to them. Back to the science for a moment. Can uh, any of you talk about herd immunity, what that means and what it would mean if we get there? This really gets back to the question of how many people we would expect to get sick and die from um, from COVID um, before our whole population in the United States becomes immune or gets herd immunity. So herd immunity is really the situation where enough people are immune to a particular disease that it has a very difficult time um, infecting people and making them sick. And we can achieve herd immunity in a safe way like we have with the influenza vaccine or measles or polio, where so many people have received that vaccination that even if we get one positive polio patient, this will not the disease will not spread because the only people they will come in contact with are people who are immune to the disease. Now, as Melissa mentioned, of course, there is no um, vaccine for COVID-19. And so what that means is that we have a very, very low population immunity, very, very few people 
in Maine, it's much less than one in a hundred people um, that actually have any kind of um, contact and immunity to the disease. So um, we're in a situation where the only way that we could get immunity to COVID-19 would be through either a vaccination, which would be safe, or through um, the disease. And as I mentioned before, if we let the disease run rampant in the United States, we're looking at 2 million people um, dying from the disease. So what we really have to think about is how to keep the social distancing, keep the protective measures in place until we can get a safe and effective vaccine that can really protect the community. So looking for silver linings here, what, what good might come out of all this, this heartache that we're all suffering here, this ramped up research? Any scientific advancements that might come out of the effort to battle this and the speed that it's happening or any lessons that could be applied elsewhere? Any of you, any thoughts on that? I think that this really highlights the need for support for biomedical research and that we need to support biomedical research so that we can be out in front of things like a pandemic because actually this pandemic was predicted. There have been other coronavirus outbreaks and it was predicted that there would be another coronavirus outbreak due to the coronaviruses that circulate in bats. And the ability of those coronaviruses to interact with the specific proteins that are expressed on human cells. And so because of that, if there's research funding in order to do this kind of research, then we can be ahead of the game. And so when there is a, a pandemic or um, any other kind of infectious disease that could possibly emerge, then we can have research that can help support that. Um, and I think that that's really critical. And I think that's one thing that's coming out of this. Another thing that's coming out of it, I think, is that people are becoming really interested in science. They're really interested in what they're reading and they're seeing the impact that a virus or another type of pathogen can have on the entire world. So that it can have on human health, but also that it can have on the global economy and our social interactions with one another. And so I think people are becoming really interested and I hope that this leads to improved scientific literacy and just improved interest in uh, learning about science in general. And I would add, too, that we're, we're seeing our colleagues become really innovative, um, pivoting their current research programs to be able to try to address various aspects of, of COVID and the virus. And um, even, you know, the folks who developed CRISPR, this famous gene editing technique, they're applying that to be able to do new testing approaches for COVID. So it's fun to see what scientists are doing to be creative and use their skill set in a way that addresses the pandemic. Rob, Caitlin, any thoughts on... Uh some good that might come out of this? Well, I've seen a lot of good instances of communities starting to band together, especially when, when we started to realize what face masks were actually doing for all of us. A lot of people started stepping up and saying, okay, I'm wearing this now because I'm protecting you and I'm helping you to understand why I'm doing this. And just the, the education that is going on from one person to another, the discussions that are happening that allow us to work through sort of what's going on informed by the science. I think there's a lot of good that can come to this in, in recognizing our interconnectedness and how we all affect each other and what we can do to protect each other. What is the latest thinking about how this virus crosses from you know, wild animals or wherever it comes from into humans? And is there any research being done on how to mitigate that? I know they talked about the uh, wild animal markets in certain areas of the world trying to shut that down. Is that one piece of trying to stop it from spreading in the first place? I um, have 
been uh, doing a little bit of looking into this. And um, one of the things that I, I think we could point out in terms of the really great things that this um, silver linings that this virus might lead to is a greater appreciation for how human beings interact with um, the wild environment. And um, what that entails really a lot is dealing with um, wild animals that are carrying viruses that could um, infect people. And that includes Ebola, Nipah virus, um, and then the SARS-CoV-2, as well as the original SARS and MERS. What people believe is that um, those folks that are going out into the wild and hunting um, animals who are interacting with um, in caves of bats that have uh, millions of bats in them, um, those people are actually, um, they're going and exposing themselves to these viruses all the time. And it's believed that these viruses are actually um, circulating in communities throughout the world in different places where we have close contact between um, high human population and high wild animal populations. And so it's inevitable that we're going to get these disease transmissions from wild animals to people. And every once in a while, at a very, very low rate, sometimes those diseases are going to be able to transmit then later on from human to human. And the instance of SARS-CoV-2 has really been um, a very, I would say, an outlier in that it's really caused a lot of human-human transmission and a lot of disease and death. These kind of diseases, which are called uh, zoonotic diseases, where you're getting transmission from animals to people and then from people to people um, later on as they evolve, these are diseases we're going to continue to see. We've been seeing these diseases in human development and evolution for hundreds of thousands of years, and we're going to continue to see them. And as globalization has really expanded over the last several decades, you combine that with these diseases jumping from animals to humans, and there's real problems. Final question for you all. You're all teachers at a base level. How might you use this research? How might you apply it in your classes or your labs or steer future researchers? I mean, there's no better real-world example of, of the work you do, I imagine. I think Melissa has an amazing answer for this, but I'm just going to give a quick one that I think it builds critical thinking, looking at all these graphs. So I bring a lot of these graphs into my lab meeting, and when we were still on campus, the last class of the semester in person, I, I brought a bunch of the graphs in to get students to critically analyze them. So I think, you know, and that comes back to the public, too, that are we really training people to be able to look at data critically or look at um, any scientific information critically and be able to assess how they interpret it? Um, so that's just one example. So I was very fortunate that I was teaching a graduate virology course this spring. So when the outbreak actually started, I got to incorporate that right into my course materials. And we talked about viral emergence and viral evolution. And we talked about pandemics versus epidemics. So it really gave us an excellent example to kind of talk through all of these concepts that we were covering in class. And then we were able to use some of the primary research articles and discuss those in class. And the students were really engaged and they had a lot of buy-in because they wanted to understand what was going on in their world. Another thing that I do in all of my courses that I incorporate some part of science communication and social media, and I assign students with a, a topic to cover in uh, social media, and they have to monitor a social me media platform like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, and then look at science communication, and then they have to pick it apart, and they have to determine if what they're actually reading is true, or if it's maybe a myth, and if it is a myth, then they have to go and bust that myth 
Smith, and it provides a really good exercise for them to critically think through science and also think about how we can use science communication in a really effective way. And hopefully that can inform how they will communicate science in the future, in their future careers going forward. Caitlin? Yep, I've got an answer for this too. So I teach senior biomedical engineers, and in my class, my students start to take all of the engineering knowledge that they've built over the past three years and expand it and start to look at engineering in the context of the broader society. And uh, one very important exercise that we do as part of that is a risk analysis. My engineers are really used to looking at a widget that they've built and thinking, well, okay, is it going to explode or not? But in reality, there is a lot more that you have to consider. How is this person going to feel about this? What is going to be the effect on family members? What is going to be the effect on this, that, and the other thing? And I think this whole situation, this COVID-19 pandemic, presents a lot of really good real-world examples where there are a lot of gray zones. There are a lot of overlapping, conflicting interests that we really need to understand and appreciate in order to make the right decisions. Rob, how about you? Just like Melissa, um, who was teaching virology, I was teaching an immunology course. And of course, uh, for COVID-19, the immune response to the disease is a very, very important component to it. So linking each of the concepts in the immunology course to the COVID-19 epidemic um, and pandemic was, um, I think, a really great way to um, interact with the students. And it allowed them also to um, have uh, direct access to expertise about immunology so that when um, they had questions about the disease and different aspects of it, they could come to me um, with those questions and um, get them answered quickly. I realized um, earlier on um, in this conversation that we maybe could have emphasized one um, thing more, a little bit more, which is that um, when the president, uh, Farini Mundi, put the, together the Scientific Advisory Board, one of the really wonderful things um, about that was serving as a connection between um, all of the planning groups and science. And it really um, promoted that interaction. It also raised the profile of science communication and science expertise um, at University of Maine um, in a statewide manner such that um, that allowed for access to the scientific expertise of the University of Maine professors to that wider community. And I think that that I, I can't stress enough how important that event was that uh, the president putting together the scientific advisory board in facilitating the science communication had. Well, you're, you're all doing very important work and we appreciate that and we appreciate you taking the time to share it with us today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Ron. Thanks so much, Ron. Thanks for the opportunity to do this. This is really fabulous. Thanks as always for joining us. We're taking a brief hiatus for a few weeks as we hit the middle of summer, but the time away will be put to good use, finding and telling more stories about research, creative achievement, and public service happening at UMaine that makes a difference. We're excited to create and share those stories with you. We'll have an announcement and a teaser for Season 3 coming out soon. Until then, stay safe, enjoy the Maine summer, and we'll catch you next time on The Maine Question. <laughs>